Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. This is the last and probably the best episode of the year, or maybe it's the worst, who knows. But I would like to welcome to the show the one, the only, the man who soon will no longer be in the White House, John Kelly. I know, I'm, wait- I'm waiting for this joke to end, and I think actually next week it's going to finally end. It ends when he leaves, John. That's when this- it ends. Yeah, you're a funny guy, Nick Bilton. Thank you very much. So last year at this time, uh, we decided we were going to do an episode where we were going to predict all the things that would happen in 2018. This was at 2017 at the time, of course. Uh, we got all the predictions correct. We won't even go back and look at them because we know they were right. Uh, but we decided what better time of the year to do this again, make it a tradition for 2019. We have... A whole lot of shit going to happen just in like the first week of the year. Um, and uh, we're going to get to a lot of these things. So John and I are going to kind of uh, bat this around back and forth um, and talk about some of the things that we think are going to happen, some of the things we know are going to happen, and some of the things that we are going to completely speculate with absolutely no idea about. Uh, you, want, you want to take it away, John, with the first sure, question? Sure, yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll note, too, that there is no equivocation on this podcast. We're, we're not those kind of weenie journalists who say, well, it could be this, it could be that. We're going to tell you exactly what's going to happen, so take this shit to the bank. All right, question number one for you, Nick Bilton. Will, will Snap be headed for a sale this time next year? Snap, whose stock price, I think, was like... Like five dollars um, uh, on on yeah, it Friday. Was, yeah, it was it was the uh, it was the lowest it had ever been in its history, which is not a very long history. Which it had fallen to five forty two, and then uh, well, actually a little lower than that. It uh, um, and then it had uh, bounced a little bit on on the speculation that there could be. Uh, you know, a suitor in the wings. My prediction, I so I I'm gonna I'm gonna eat a little crow here. I don't even know where that saying comes from, but I'm still gonna use it. And I'm gonna say because I was very bullish on Snap in the beginning, and then I've done a little reporting, I've spoken to some people, read some things, and I'm gonna say Snap's in a whole fucking lot of trouble right now. Um, Evan Spiegel has a mentality that is uh, I can do no wrong. I know the answers to everything. And what's so difficult is that when someone has built something in their dorm room that has become a, a, you know, for want of a better price, six, 10, $20 billion business, um, it's really hard to tell them, hey, your idea about the next iteration of that thing is wrong. And so that's what's happened over at Snapchat. And, um, and I don't know if that company is going to be around in the iteration it is uh, this time next year. I think that there'll be a point when the stockholders or the board, I think that the board is a little pathetic right now, but when one of them decides, all right, we've had enough, we want something to change. And I think that that will be, the, um, that will be maybe the, the big shift that happens to Snap. I don't see it. You know, going out of business and closing up shop. I don't think that really happens to these tech companies. But, uh, but you know, I don't know. It's kind of a sad story, really. And here's why it's a sad story. I'll just leave on this point. Because if you notice on Snapchat, there is no like. There's no follow feature. You can't see how many people watch the video or anything like that. And that's all by design by Evan Spiegel, who, who I think is really um, – he really kind of cares that his product doesn't – uh, doesn't screw up society. And so unlike Mark Zuckerberg, who of course wants to screw up society. Um, and so it's a shame that it's not going to work out. Who's going to buy it? Who's going to buy it? I could see, you know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Facebook will have the opportunity ever to buy it. Um, I don't think that, um, I can't see Twitter doing it. I think that, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, then maybe there's a world where Twitter buys it. I mean, the start, the, mar- the market cap of, of, um, of Snap right now is down to six and a half billion. I mean, it could drop further, and you know, then it's just kind of see what change we have between the couch cushions and go go pick it up. But I could imagine like an AT and T or or something like that, or a Verizon, or even a Disney. I mean, I remember I interviewed Bob Iger on stage this year, and he said that he didn't he he had you know one of the things the one of the reasons he never bought twitter is because it was just there was too many variables that he wouldn't have been able to predict like isis and and you know kkk members and things like that and yeah it came down to brand fit if i remember that conversation yeah he really oh, yeah. loved the idea of he loved the idea of owning a social network he thought it would be great for for the disney brand and that you could have people talking about disney and 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 it could kind of parlay into you know when the next pixar movie comes out and this that and the other um, and Twitter, of course, is not the right fit. No one wants to buy Facebook, um, even if they could afford it. Um, and I feel like Snapchat actually could be a good fit for like a Disney or an Apple or something like that, especially for Apple. I mean, you know, Tim Cook is a huge believer in um, augmented reality. So so there you have it. I've heard Scott Galloway uh, uh, predict that Amazon would buy it. I, I'm, I, I think that his, his main... Um, Sort of a source of uh, or instinct for that was that Jeff Bezos is one of the few people that that um, Evan Spiegel would kowtow to. But I'm gonna I'm gonna raise you one. I think that uh, the Tencent uh, buys buy Snap in a. I um, literally I just had a moment where I was like I, I was like fifty cent is gonna buy Snap. I didn't fifty, didn't 50 cent the the, the vitamin <laughs> water uh, 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 power bajillionaire former rapper is you know I think that uh, I, my guess would be that um, and I know I asked this question to you. But that a, a a foreign media company is willing to take a flyer on on Snap and say it, it, it's worth it just to get into the American media market. Well, we will find out. We'll find out this yeah, time we'll out. next year. All right. So my turn to ask you a question. My this is question number two, and the question that has been burning in my mind, um, and I'm sure has with a lot of listeners, is who will be leading the Democratic primary? for the first time or maybe for the second time or whatever, who will be the person this time next year as we head into the 2020 election, which arguably, I mean, I know we say this every election period, but it arguably could be one of the most important in history because Ruth Bader Ginsburg may not last uh, as a uh, Supreme Court justice for another five years. And so therefore it would be an opportunity if Trump wins to to slap in a couple more um, conservative judges. Who do you think is going to be um, uh, at the forefront of the Democratic primary this time next year? I think that it's going to be uh, Beto O'Rourke or Kamala Harris. Um, and, and I think it's probably going to be Beto. Um, and I think that for a, a couple of reasons, uh, similar to what we saw in 2016, I mean, there there are a million variables as there, as there always will be. But one point that you've made over and over again uh, is that there's an authenticity uh, element to it. Uh, Trump's obviously in- incredibly full of it, but but to his base, he is an authentic factor, and he isn't. Um, and he and he wasn't. He wasn't tainted by being a career politician. And I think that there are many career politicians that are speculating about uh, over a run. And um, yeah, I think that they're all going to carry some taint. I think that the, the businessman group, which is the sort of Howard Schultz. Mike Bloomberg, possibly Bob Iger, but I think that he's not really going to run in the end. There's no, there's no genuine enthusiasm for anyone in in that cadre. I remember looking at the Instagram post when Bloomberg announced he was registering uh, or re-registering um, uh, as a Democrat, and I think it had like a thousand likes or something. And I, you know, if you compare that to to, to Trump tweeting just "Merry Christmas," you you sort of see a natural enthusiasm gap. Beto is untouched by a lot of things. He's going to be out of Congress at a time when everyone hates Congress. He just seems authentic. Even you know when, when he dropped the f bomb in his concession speech, it was it was authentic. Um, and he there's just there's genuine momentum there. It's not Obama like, but it's but it's something. It, it's palpable. And I think that of of all the contenders coming out of the Senate, uh, Kamala Harris seems to be the only one that uh, that is. Is youthful, fresh, um, doesn't have a, a, a track record of, of deceit, which I think people uh, accuse Cory Booker of having, or, 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 or media hunger. Um, I think that for some reason, all the Bernie enthusiasm that was very, very real two or three years ago has dried up. 
Elizabeth Warren seems to have kind of already been been zapped. And even though Joe Biden is leading the polls in Iowa right now, something just tells me that people are going to have a hard time uh, coming out for, for Biden. So Beto oh, and, and I, Kamala. I completely agree that, um, that, that there's no one's coming. I mean, I think Biden could go head to head with Trump, but um, and he would, and Trump would have a difficult time, you know, saying that he was going to, he, he, to use the drain the swamp analogies and all those things with Biden because Biden's, you know, a blue collar hero and, and so on. But I don't think anyone wants another, in the same way they didn't want another Clinton in the White House. I don't think they want someone else from the Obama administration in the White House. And I think my only question is, is if there is a, a person out there that we don't know about. I mean, if we'd have had this conversation, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, we're too close now. Um, if you're having really? this conversation six months ago, yeah, I, I think you no, have not to six begin- months ago. I'm going to say three years ago. If if we'd have had this conversation three years ago or what, whatever, like right before Trump uh, decided he was going to run, we would never have said Trump. And it took it took him what six months to become just to to destroy everyone else in his path and and head on towards the direction of the White House. And I I just wonder it's you're, if you're right, someone- you're right, Nick. Though, but I think that the, the difference is you know I I read um, uh, the Bob Woodward book Fear a couple of months ago, and one of the uh, interesting takeaways from that is how early uh, the 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 Trump circle, the very small Trump circle, was reaching out to. Um, to you know, uh, some sort of emissaries in the Republican Party to to get a whiff of of uh, support. Obviously, most people just said you know get out of here or wouldn't return the phone call. But to raise the amount of money that people are going to have to raise on the left, I think that we kind of know the field now. I, I don't think you know. I, I mean, someone like Tom Steyer can can put a, a fortune um, or their own personal fortune forward, and maybe that uh, obviates some fundraising. But I th- I think at this point, the scary thing for the Democrats is. What you see is what you get. And that's why Beto looks so appealing. Because everyone is really, really familiar or kind of familiar. And he's the only unknown quantity. And and that brings with it a level of promise. Well, it will be interesting to see. And you can be sure that we will be discussing this extensively on the Inside the Hive podcast. Brought to you by Vanity Fair. Just kidding. Um, no, I right, think Nick- it'll, be interest- it'll be interesting to see. So we, we, will, we, we will be talking about it quite a lot. Question for you. Um, uh, maybe you have oh, material uh, I- information for investors. Next year, Uber is supposed to IPO. What mm-hmm. number do you think it will IPO at? At, at, at what value? I know that uh, Derek Hasselshaw, I think, makes a, a, a massive sum if it IPOs around $100 billion. Will it get there? Yeah, I think uh, Dara will make, I forget the number exactly, but something like a $100 million bonus or something if they... Um, if they go public at a um, hundred billion, I think that it will. Um, do I think it deserves to? No, but I do think that it will uh, go public at that value. My guess, if I have to throw a number out there, is they're going to go just north of a hundred to like a hundred and ten, a wow. hundred and twenty. Um, uh, and the reason I say that that is the case is because what they have, what they, what Uber has is this little machine where they get a few they have these levers they can pull and they can just in the same way Facebook could do this with user growth like with Facebook they used to be able to if Facebook had wanted to 5 4 4 years ago 3 years ago 2 years ago if they wanted to add um you know, a hundred million users in a quarter, they would have been able to do it, but they did it in a very slow and methodical pace so that um, they they could ensure that every quarter they would continue to show growth. The reason that it backfired and didn't work out in this last quarter is because they actually saw users going away from the platform because of all the Russia stuff. But for years, they have been able to do this. And if you look at the increase, that's what it has shown. Every single year is a step, uh, step up in user growth. The same is true for for a company like Uber, which you know does millions and millions and millions of rides, has hundreds of thousands of drivers, um, and there the drivers have no idea how much, what percentage Uber takes, and Uber can decide on any given ride if they want to take more or less or this that and the other. And so I think that when you look at the S one that will end up coming out in the next few months, um, leading into the IPO, you will see. 
a rise in uh, revenue and it'll be a step that they mm-hmm. know is, is is in the direction of a $110 billion company. And so I think that that's why they'll be able to do it. The problem is I think that um, you know, they're just restarting up their driverless car market. I do believe, I know this wasn't part of the question, but I do believe that we are going to start to see some real examples of driverless cars on the roads in the next year, um, whether you're going to see more Tesla-like autopilot things or uh, controlled Google driverless cars or whatever it is um, in cities in cities and like certain streets or certain areas, almost like when you're at Disney and there's the carts that take you to different places. Um, and I don't know if Uber will be able to catch up. And I'm, I'm curious to see how the stock will react when they do go public to that. It's an so. extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, I, I guess baked into this is what investors need to believe, right? I know that the bankers have have told the Uber board that they're hoping for a $120 billion valuation. And that may be because they want to win the business to do the roadshow. But I think Uber's revenue, projected annual revenue this year, which is, is coming to a close, is like around ten billion, right? It, it's like um, mm-hmm. it's like two and a half billion a quarter, give or take. And I was just uh, um, googling as you were uh, delivering that that uh, long, elegant uh, soliloquy. So GM has a market cap of like fifty billion dollars. Do you know what GM's annual revenue is? Just guess. Seven billion. GM's annual revenue is one hundred and forty billion dollars internet. One hundred and forty billion dollars in their in their market. So so they're, so they're trading yeah so they're trading at um, uh, at a point three or point four whatever it is and um, it's uh, it's 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 extraordinary. I mean it, it's an extraordinary uh, uh, demonstration of of what people people believe Uber is going to do. Well, what's crazy is if you look at G, the GM stock compared to the Tesla stock, and you look at the revenue comparisons. I mean. Tesla is valued as if it's some company that's going to send people to Mars or something like that. It's it is so grossly overvalued compared to the, its competitors and the amount of money that they they pull in every year. So, but these guys um, may be onto something. I, I agree with you that it, it looks off, but I think that a point you make frequently that I've adopted as my own is that the market is learning how to price these things. It's not as But the market as... still has not, they still have not learned how to price them. In no, totally, no, no. If, if they did, by the way, yeah, we, we'd be rich. Um, uh, but but it, a lot of it is optimism. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's it's wild. Tesla's market cap is is 60.1 billion, 60.62 billion. And um, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's no, and they can't I mean, even deliver I, cars. They can't even get cars yeah. off the lot. My theory and and some investors I've spoken to over the year um, have said to me that they they think that fifty billion of that is um, uh, is based on just the fact that Elon Musk is uh, um, is you know running the show there. So here's a question based based on that. Um, I'm going to throw one back at you. Do you think that Elon Musk? Uh, I don't really know as if it a do you think, but it's a question of what do you think happens with Elon Musk over the next um, uh, over the next year? Like, does he does he go back on one of his crazy benders? Does he you know rise to save the day and Tesla becomes a profitable business that everyone loves and cares about and he can deliver enough cars? Or you know does does just do things continue to spiral in the way they did this year? Well, people want to know what you think about this, so I'm just going to answer very, very briefly. I, I think that uh, in a year, he'll be fine. It'll be no different. The Tesla comms team will probably be a little bit longer, so there are a little bit bigger, so there are more filters between Elon Musk and, and his Twitter followers. Um, but I do think that Tesla has moved through a lot of its most immediate problems on on the production line. However, what happens to Tesla in, in 5, 10, 15 years I do think is anyone's guess. Uh, he's obviously an incredibly brilliant person, but for that company to work, it's going to have to work at a, a truly international level because to go back one beat to our Uber conversation, th- there will be a reduced market or, or a narrowing market for people who want to own stunningly beautiful, efficient cars. And it's unclear to me where that market goes. Surely it'll, it'll go international. But how big can, can that opportunity get? I, I don't know if it's as big as the market currently believes it is. No, I agree. I, I think that, you know, I've been, I've read a bunch of reports recently from um, 
some of the, the the capital markets and people who are predicting what Tesla will do in the next year. Uh, there's a lot of stories out there saying that um, you know 2019 and beyond looks really strong for Tesla. That the that the uh, the Model 3 market, there's a huge demand. But I also think that some of the reports, um, when you kind of look at them, are are missing. I think they're missing trends. And I and I, I actually do want to I, I, we joke around a little bit on, on the show, especially with the prediction stuff. But I, I actually would like to come back to this in a year and 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 actually explore this, because I do believe that there are two trends that are going to happen. One is that the whole idea of car ownership is is starting to change, especially with teens and so on. You saw Volvo this year with their um, their uh, XC40, which is their smallest SUV, where you can you can do this program where you you essentially do a two year lease, and if you get bored of your car three months in, you can kind of switch it up and go do a different Volvo. And um, and I think that you know we we have neighbors who have teenagers who are just getting their licenses and. And some of them want their, some of them want the cars, and some of them want their Uber accounts. But even the ones that want a car, they 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 don't care about ownership of that car, and they don't care about um, they they the idea of like using an app called like Fair. Have you ever heard of Fair? Um, no. F a f a i r. It's essentially like a, a leasing app um, where you can you could lease a. You, you sign up and you you can lease whatever you want and you can lease it for whatever period of time you want. So if you want to get a BMW i3 for, for a week or a month or a year, you can do that. If you want to switch halfway through and get go to a Tesla, you can do that, whatever it is. And I think that I truly do believe that there is going to be a change in mentality in the same way that where leases became a, a, a way people could get cars that they wanted instead of having to buy them. I think that there's going to be a whole new change in mentality of ownership around cars. And, and I don't think that that is a good sign for Tesla. Um, I think it's a better sign for some of these other car manufacturers. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, you, to, you know, I talk about this with a lot of companies, um, but the a lot of companies like Netflix and and even Amazon uh, and places like that have never really truly had competition in certain areas of their business. So Netflix has never truly had competition in its over-the-top streaming platforms. You know, Disney is not a competitor. AT&T is not a competitor. That is going to change this year. Um, and it's 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 very worrying for people at Netflix, executives there. It's very worrying for the markets, um, uh, for investors and so on. And I think that's the same with Tesla. Tesla has never truly had a competitor in the electric car market. And that is going to change this year. You've got the Audi coming out. You've got some startups based in California that I've seen. You've got um, a, a whole slew of cars from the high end to the low end. Um, and I think that they're going to kind of have somewhat of an impact on Tesla's market. It will be determined if if it affects their Model 3 sales or if it doesn't. And I also, what we don't know is if if Elon Musk has another car up his sleeve that we don't know about that's even less expensive than the Model 3 or something that he's going to unveil. Of course, it won't come out this year, but there could be something else out there. But uh, but I I um, I wouldn't say I'm bullish and I wouldn't say I'm bearish. I'd say I'm very cautious about Tesla. Well, so you, so you just hit on something that, that uh, is the core of my next question to you, which is Disney Plus, the Time Warner or uh, Warner Media bundle, um, and Netflix and Hulu, I suppose. Who's the big winner in 2019? Who I think that... Um, and Amazon, too, which has its uh, less original programming, but uh, is still increasingly a, a player now that it has live sports. I think that um, I think Amazon's going to continue down its path. First of all, you know they're they're putting in five billion in in programming uh, this next year. Netflix is is at, at eight billion. I think going to ten. Uh, I think that Disney is um, is genuinely a company that Netflix should be afraid of um, because not only do they have this this huge 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 uh, market of of old movies and shows like Friends and all these things that everyone wants to watch that accommodate for 80% of all of the viewing on Netflix. Um, but they also have um, – if you're a, a family – and it's, it's interesting. Yeah, so they have we, Moana. No, you don't have to tell me. They, it's, what do you do if you're an adult with kids? You, you throw them in front of the television and put in a 90-minute Disney movie. 
So I wrote a piece uh, for the Times back in 2009. <clears throat> it was the summer of 2009, and the piece the, it was actually one of the first articles I read for the print paper. Wrote for the print paper, and it was about how you cut your cord for like how to be a cord cutter. And no one was really doing it back then. Like it was, you know, it was just kind of this example. It was a really shoddy way of doing it. I had to like buy it. I bought a computer that I hooked up to my television and this wireless mouse that I would use. But the thing that I remember writing in that piece was that I was saving myself $1,400 a year because I was no longer paying for cable. I just would literally just stream things over, um, uh, online. And, um, and now what's so fascinating is if I look at my media consumption bill, it's back up to like $1,200 a year because I pay $10 for Netflix. I pay for Amazon. I pay for Hulu. I pay for you know the, the movies that I buy here and there off, off iTunes and this, that, and the other. And you, they all start to add up again, and you're back to that place where if you want to watch the things you want to watch, you're now pen- spending $100 a month um, on all this content. And I'm literally at the point where I was like, I just need to get rid of some of these things. I just I don't use them enough, and and I think that as you know, it's very clear as we've seen with the the financial markets over the last month that you know there's a lot of trepidation about what's going to happen with the with the economy. Um, there's still a huge belief that we're going to head into a recession, and I do think if we get there, that families across the Midwest will be forced to decide where they want to spend their ten or twenty dollars a month on media. And the first place is going to be Disney. It's not going to be Netflix. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, Netflix is probably really, really worried about. And I think Disney is going to do a tremendous job, as they always do uh, under Iger, with um, re- with releasing this product. And and they have a lot of money to do it with. So my prediction um, is uh, um, it's really going to kind of have a have an impact on on Netflix and, and maybe Amazon. Yeah, I, I think that Disney, just I would add an a, a asterisk to that, Nick, I think that the live sports thing cannot be underscored enough. Yeah, Anyone no, who's going to pay they, for, for the NBA and the NFL, that, that's as close as we have now to on-demand viewing, and it's about the last uh, vestige of it. And, and Disney sure has it, and Amazon seems like it sure wants more. Well, and the, the other thing, to go back to that 2009 article, I remember the one thing that I wrote was, you can pretty much get anything you want online. Sure, sometimes you have to steal it, and other times you have to kind of stream it on and on the service that's not very good. But the only thing you couldn't get, and it's the only thing you still can't get on Netflix, is live sports. And that is something that over the years people have told me over and over and over again, oh, I want to cut my cable, but I want to be able to watch the... I'm not even going to pretend I know the name of a sports team. Yeah, I know. I'm team, not going to let you bother. Yeah. I, I want to watch the San Francisco Colts play this weekend. <laughs> did I get it right? No, not did quite. I, did uh, The New York the 49ers, 49ers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's up there. This is embarrassing. Who are the Colts? What what city is that? What city uh, is in, that? Indianapolis. Okay, thanks. Um uh, I'm just, you know, not very good at this stuff. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. All right, listeners, get on the edge of your seat because when you see this film I'm about to tell you about, that is what's going to happen to you. Academy Award winner Sandra Bullock stars in a compelling new Netflix film called Bird Box. It's dramatic, tense, terrifying, and utterly brilliant. When a mysterious force decimates the world's population, only one thing is certain. If you see it, if you see the force, you will take your own life. So facing the unknown, Mallory, played by Bullock, finds love, hope, and a new beginning only for it to completely unravel. Now she must flee with her two children down a treacherous river to the one place left that may or may not offer sanctuary. But to survive, they'll have to undertake this perilous two-day journey blindfolded. I know, terrifying. Academy Award winner Sandra Bullock leads an all-star cast that includes Trayvante Rhodes with Sarah Paulson and John Malkovich in the Netflix film Bird Box, directed by Academy Award winner Susanna Bear. Watch the new film Bird Box on Netflix now. It's amazing. It's brilliant. You will be on the edge of your seat the entire time. Do it. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about a certain little orange man in the White House who does not believe in Santa Claus. Uh, sorry, children, if you're listening to the show, um, Donald J. Trump. I have a few questions about this, but my first is, let's just go with an easy one. 
Uh, Trump's approval rating has kind of not really moved over the last, um, I don't know, has it been the last year or the last two wor- two years? It's It's been pretty pretty even, you know. Um, right now, he has a, according to 538, which, which puts all the approval ratings together, he has a 41.4% approval rating, uh, which is up from his, I think his low this year was around 36%. Uh, his high was was uh, closer to forty five percent. So it's it's you know it's all kind of like a margin of error, pretty equal. What do you think this time next year his approval rating is? I think it's the same. I, I think that there's a there's a basement at thirty three or thirty four percent. That that's that's the base. Um, and I think it's hard for him to exceed forty seven percent, which is probably what he's gotten to in some Rasmussen polls, which is the poll that's most favorable to him traditionally. The base does not care about Mueller or the Russia probe. They, they don't. Um, Do they care they about care, anything? They, they care about the wall. They, they, they care about the campaign promises. They care about pulling troops out of uh, what, what they see to be losing foreign wars. I mean, I think that's why Trump went crazy these last couple of weeks and pulled out of Syria, appears to be uh, you know ready to pull out of Afghanistan, uh, forced out the last cuck remaining in, in Jim Mattis, or the last major cuck, and why he's prepared to shut the government down until the Democrats step in over this uh, this bizarre wall fascination. Th- these are promises that he made, and he thinks that his, his base holds him accountable to them. So I think it's going to stay the same. I think the environment will have changed significantly. He's going to have a Democratic Congress, that, that Congress that's going to have a, a, you know, a gun to his head, and he's going to have an increasingly irate... Um, you know, Republican leadership in in the Senate that's going to be sick of this. I think that McConnell is already sort of terrified about the the Mattis departure, and I'm sure that he's he's rolling his eyes about the wall. But the approval rating, I think, will stay the same. Well, what's what what's actually super interesting when you look at look at the polls is um, Rasmussen, the uh, the report that that's always very favorable to Donald Trump, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole whole thing you can read online on uh, by from Nate Silver about why that is the case. But for the most part, he has stayed within the kind of forty nine to fifty one percent range of approval on Rasmussen. And the thing that's really interesting is um, shortly after around December eighteenth, it started to fall, and it's now down to forty six percent. Um, and even the strongly approved is down to 33%. And this is like over several weeks. This is not just kind of like an anomaly here or there. And I do wonder if some of his base is starting to turn on him a little. It's just a small amount, I, I granted. But um, but I wonder if uh, – I do wonder if some of them are. And I – you know, especially after the midterms and um, and you said there's no wall. So who who knows? But – it's going to be fun to watch. I swear. Yeah, a, a flagging uh, right. economy is going to hurt. So that, that's oh, flag, but and the thing that's so interesting. I remember we we talked about this a while back, um, and I also had some experts on uh, who who study all this stuff that were talking about it. Um, if Trump Trump has pretty much used up all of his cards when it comes to the economy, there's no more tax cuts. There's no more, you know, corporate taxes. Nothing he can do that can affect those numbers. Uh, he he used them all up, and so uh, at this point, um, he's just kind of got to cross his fingers and hope for the best, uh, unless he decides to kind of start another war or something. Um, so we'll see. All right, I have one more Trump question for you. Um, do you think that in the next year uh, that Donald Jr. ends up being indicted? Yeah, I, I think I think that there's a very high likelihood that he's going to be indicted. I, I think based on Gabe Sherman's reporting that even he thinks there's a high likelihood that he gets indicted. Um, I think we'll find out soon. I don't I don't think we'll have to uh, wait a year to have this conversation. I think we'll we'll know in the next three months if members of Trump's family are somehow ensnared in the the summer 2016 uh, meeting with the Russian lawyer Veselinskaya over uh, you know what, what they said was the Mijnitsky Act which which it, it may have been <laughs> to some degree but was probably also about that dirt on Hillary Clinton but here is this is not the question you asked but here is something that I think is much more at uh, in play I think there's a real chance that um that Pence isn't on the ticket in 2020 I think that's what that's do you think happens to him well I I think that you know, Pence was sort of a credential of um, the conservative establishment, and he was certainly uh, a buy-off to the Koch network. I mean, he, he's a he was 
you know, responsible for people like Betsy DeVos having their job. This is a, an unprovable thing, but his relationship to to um, to the Coke Network is is well known. Anyone who reads the who's read the Jane Mayer uh, New Yorker profile will, will certainly um, uh, know this already. So I don't know if Trump feels like he needs to genuflect to the sort of bench of of, uh, of high conservatism anymore. He may find and he may be told by people like David Bossy and uh, and Brad Parscale, you know, who are, and Jared Kushner for that matter, leading the reelection effort, that his best bet is to like triple down on the base and find someone who is even more kind of piping hot and appealing in, in, in ways that he isn't. I don't think Nikki Haley is going to be in his ticket. Um, who Who is who's the person that is more pipingly hot, hotly You know, Mr. T, Don King. Um, That's a good point. Kid um, Rock. Sean Hannity. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Nick Bilton. Do you, th- do you think that, do you th- I mean, you know, he, the, the one thing that's really interesting is how do you get um, Trump to, uh, you know, he's, he's he, I don't, do you think, well, first, here's a question before I say what I was going to say. Do you think he's going to get the wall funding? No, I don't. Um, I, I think he, I think he had a chance to get certain, you know, s- some billions of dollars allocated towards some uh, form of border defense that he could have spun into a victorious narrative for his base. At this point, I think it's pretty hard, given the power that the Democrats are going to have when uh, in the new year to do it. But I, I, I'm, I also admit I'm not somebody who knows like. I'm not a scholar when it comes to um, all, all the maneuvering that can take place on uh, on congressional floor and, and, and the caucusing process. So there are, there certainly are ways I'm sure that he could spin this, but it seems very very unlikely at this point. And he looks worse okay, every so, day too. That's the thing. He's lost his uh, his his leverage. Yeah, and it, I mean I have friends that work in the government that were that I was talking to this weekend that was saying you know they're they're losing. Um, sick days and, and vacation days and they're not getting paid and how long can they keep doing this for and you know we're on day five now and it doesn't look like there's any rush to reopen and I I think that the where Trump really fucked up royally was when he was like I'll shut the government down and then he's now he's trying to blame it back on the Democrats but there's the video showing that he said it and that wasn't just on you know it wasn't just right. on CNN it was on Fox um, the, so the question I had was um, if he cannot use the you know the the ticket of I'm going to drain the swamp and I'm going to build the wall and things like that. It seems like if he pushes Pence out that he would have to try to keep with that agenda of like, oh, he was part of the swamp. I'm going to get someone who's not, which means he would probably go somewhere that we haven't even thought of to get a VP candidate. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. You know, Trump has proven that he wants to win um so m- more than he wants anything else. So he's he's willing to put up with um, with uh, someone that he may not personally like uh, in, in order to do that. I think you'd have to look demographically. Does he try and get someone from Texas so that he can he can guarantee victory there? Does he does he try and find someone in Florida? Um, does he try and you know who who within his kind of anti firewall or firewall defense is there someone in Ohio or Pennsylvania that he um, I, mean, I think he has a personal affinity for Mark Meadows, but I don't think Mark Meadows is going to be on that ticket. So I, I think that his political advisors will will. Um, and this happens all the time, by the way. It's not just with someone who's as crazy as Trump. We've seen many times in the past candidates want to pick the person that they feel a, a personal affinity, you know, towards. We saw this recently with McCain wanting to pick Joe Lieberman, and Mike Schmidt said, "No way! If you want to have a chance at this, you got to you got to kind of go rogue and, and pick someone as crazy as Sarah Palin." And I think McCain regretted it till uh, you know till his his last breath. I don't think Trump is somebody who would listen to an advisor over his own gut instinct, but I do think that he will take advice from uh, from a core group of people about who gives him the the best political chance. And and Pence is sort of a, a you know a, besides the donor network, he's sort of a nothing burger, right? He was a guy who wasn't even going to win re-election in his own state. That's why he took a gamble on Trump. Oh boy, this is I know. We'll see. Depressing and sad. Um, all right, we got to, we got we have time for a couple more questions. Okay, so yeah. Here's want- a question for you. Speaking of depressing and sad, uh, this time next year is Cheryl Sandberg still the chief operations officer at the Facebook? I was waiting for a Facebook question. Um, I don't believe that Cheryl Sandberg is going anywhere just yet. I do think that you know 
I have a friend who works in a public relations in the technology industry. <clears throat> I will not say his name or where he works, but he has this theory that there are these kind of cycles where, you know, people love you as a company or a person. Uh, they write wonderful things about you as a company or a person, and uh, and then the knives come out and they come after you. And then the, – but that it is a cycle that then repeats itself. Um, so I think that there is a, there is a world where um, – uh, Cheryl does leave Facebook at some point and goes off to do something else. Um, you know, maybe volunteers in sub-Saharan Africa to show that she really cares about I people or something like that. I didn't think that Trump like advisors that. were going to suggest that Cheryl Sandberg uh, would be the um, no. I, uh, the I do not either. Um, uh, so there is that. Um, but I, I, what I wonder is, I mean, it was it was only a matter of time before the knives finally did come out for Cheryl, and they came out. They came out sharp and strong. There was a lot of people inside Facebook that do not like her. There's a lot of people inside Facebook that love her. Um, and there's a lot of people who I think have been uh, snubbed by her or uh, feel that she is not as legitimate as she says she is in a lot of areas. Um, uh, and so the question is, um, is there someone who um, – is, 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 does she have time for another cycle? Uh, in other words, like can the – the negative be turned into a positive. I, and I think that the only way that's going to happen is if she stops, if she starts to become a little more, more human and a little more real and stops with the bullshit of like these like stupid blog posts that she posts and these stupid comments that, and Mark does this too. They all do this where they're like, we're working so hard to make the world a better place and we're trying as hard as we can. And, and Mark like writes these things that say the same thing. It is so frustrating because it's not real and everyone knows it's not real. It's almost like when you watch – if you go watch a TV show from from the 1980s and they have the the laugh tracks in the background where the audience fake laughs. And Mm -hmm. we never see – we never hear those anymore because they're not – because we all knew they were bullshit. And I think that the comments, not just from Cheryl, not just from Mark, but from from Jack Dorsey at Twitter, all these places, I think that – if these companies can start actually being legitimate and honest and real about what's going on uh, and how they feel, and um, there's there's a second chance for them, uh, but if not, I think it's just going to kind of stay in negative territory. I do believe that um, Facebook is going to have a pretty rough year. I think that uh, we have only, you know, they'll. I don't know how many more privacy scandals there are left to come out, but I don't think that they are going to solve the fake news problem and all the stuff that Russia is going to do on there with within the time frame of the 2020 election. Well, they're not trying to um, solve the problem. I mean, that, that's, no, the, that's the issue. Is that It's just a matter of playing defense. Let me ask you this. We, we read um, – there was that journal article that came out about a month ago that that uh, noted that Sandberg had, had sort of uh, – pointed out to some friends that she, for the first time, she thought that there was a little bit of uncertainty about her job, although we, we quickly found out that that wasn't the case, that, that Zuckerberg stands behind her. Do you have any sense in your reporting of, of uh, what the relationship is like between the two of them? Is Zuckerberg just unfailingly loyal to her? Does he feel like he absolutely needs her? Does she feel like yes. she's, she's got a monkey on yes. her? Yeah. No, okay. They are she, she, just, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, you could... Cheryl could do anything and Mark could do anything and they would both have each other's back. Um, I think they've been through a lot together. I think that they, you know, um, and they both respect each other and they both have an agenda beyond just, you know, quote unquote, connecting people. Um, their agendas may be different, but, you know, um, but the agendas work together. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, I don't think that, I think that literally you could, a new story could come out that it turns out there was no Russian interference in the election and it was Sheryl Sandberg that did it. And Mark would be like, oh, well, that's okay. She's a great person. You know, it's like, I don't think, not that that would ever happen, but you know what I'm saying? I think that there's nothing that, that she could do or nothing that he could do um, that would um, that, that would change anything. I think what's really interesting is that, you know, the board is, of course, behind both of them. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look, uh, it was, I think it was around July 25th this year, um, the, the market cap, this, the, the stock of Facebook was, I think, around $217, $218. It has fallen to almost $100 below that um, at this mm. point, six months later, to $125, $124 a, a share. That is 
a trem- that's hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. And, and despite all the negative shit that we're saying, I'm actually writing a note to myself that says um, buy Facebook stock tomorrow. But um, well, but I don't right. see. I don't. So I, 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 I don't know if that's the right. I do think that there's a lot further this can go. And at some point, does. To the investors, I mean, look, you can't ever get Mark Zuckerberg out of there. It's just impossible. As mm-hmm. Scott Galloway said to me in a great quote, like, you have a better chance of seeing a an African <coughs> warlord be pushed out of um, of running his country than you do of Mark Zuckerberg uh, being pushed out of Facebook. But I do wonder if at some point, um, you know, that the, the something actually happens where investors want some change and if if the market cap continues to fall if the stock price continues to fall like how how low can it go will it go below 100 and and investors will be okay with that um i don't know and at some point maybe they'll start to kind of push for some some change who who knows even an african strongman has more job insecurity than mark zuckerberg quote scott galloway i'm I'm, I'm quoting scott galloway to nick bilton on nick bilton's show there you have it yeah and the, the 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 uh uh, the the thing is, he's completely right. And so this is the, the this was the funny thing this year. Like, you know, all the Times stories came out and the Post stories and this that about Facebook, and everyone was like, Mark Zuckerberg's going to resign. It was like, no, he's not going to resign. Are you kidding? What are you? Have you not been paying attention the whole time? You think just because a couple of stories came out that show him in a bad light or show Cheryl in a bad light that they're going to resign? No way. This is not the way the company runs. They look at everything like it's war, and that's it. They're at war. Period. End of story. And things do go way faster now. That that I, I hate to say that, but it's true. And I think that that you know that's the 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 Trump thesis. But I also think it's true with a lot of these people that we discuss every week on this show um, who run companies in Silicon Valley. They know that everyone gets their time in the barrel. But if you just sort of gird your loins and keep your mouth shut and just smile, it's going to be somebody else who's getting it the next day. Well, and it's also, um, uh, you know, what I think would have f- five, six, seven, four years ago, um, things that would have seen, uh, you know, companies reduced to sand, um, literally or just, you know, flitters in the wind. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything anymore. Thanks to Donald J. Trump, I would say. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I, I, my only hope, this is my last point, is that, that these people that run these companies stop talking to people that like they're idiots and they don't understand what's really going on and stop saying we're working to fix this and and they actually start fucking fixing it. It's just like it's if they really wanted to if Twitter really wanted to get rid of the the, the all the nasty comments back and forth and the Russian bots, they could. If Facebook really wanted to solve the fake news problem, they could. Um, it's just like stop bullshitting and pretending you want to and just actually do it. That's my I'm with you, my, homie. Yeah, that's no, let, my let, end let, of 2018. Let's do it. All right, let's so, make 2019 so, a better place. Let's make <laughs> or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> make it a little better in 2019. Uh, um, I like that because it's you know Facebook's thing. Okay, last question for you before we say goodbye to our weary listeners that are still listening. All right, next week, two weeks from now, whenever it is. Um, the Democrats will take over the House. What do you think they are going to do at first with their newfound power? TikTok. TikTok. Well, I mean, I think Elijah Cummings and Adam Schiff were the the heads of um, you know the the oversight and um, uh, and intelligence committees. I've have in reverse order are are going to do to basically try and. I'm trying to think of the appropriate metaphor. I mean, uh, just like like cup check everyone in the Trump family and the Trump organization in, in the Trump universe, and part of it is obviously necessary. I think that that there is a deep appetite among the Vox populi to know, uh, you know, what what Trump's affairs look like. But I also think that in Schiff's case, it's it's going to look a little bit gross too in the process. As somebody who he he wants to be the dark horse that we uh, forgot to mention earlier in the show, the person who who comes out of nowhere to be the the Democratic white knight in twenty twenty. I don't think the guy's got the juice, and I don't think he's also he's just it's sort of uh, not appealing enough, and and he's pulling a bit of a Ken Star, um, using investigative powers to to promote his own star. But that said, 
what are they going to do? They're going to go after the guy's family. They're going to go after his business. And I think along the way, they're going to force a very, very fascinating showdown in which they try and subpoena his tax returns. There's going to be some beef over at the Treasury Department, which has oversight of the tax returns. And the but the investigative committee will be able to look at them. And then they will leak them to someone at the New York Times. And all hell will break loose. And it'll just be a melee. Well, this I can't wait. Is the thing that, I can't wait. The, you know. This is the thing I think that's so fascinating is that you're going to have, you know, Donald Trump does not do well in situations where he's not in control. And for the first time, I mean, sure, he has the Senate, but like for the first time in two years or for the first time in his adult life, he's going to be in a situation where he's not in control. And I think you're going to see him, you know, go off the deep end quite a lot, honestly. Um, it's not going to be pretty. So well, you know, it's funny. Uh, on, on so much fun news, to watch. On cable news, Schiff and, and his ilk have, have sort of referred to this as a um, a financial autopsy of sorts. It, it is truly going to be a, a financial colonoscopy. They are going to go for it, and it's going to be, <laughs> uh, and, and it, it and it's going to be intense. It's going to be gnarly. It's going to be stuff that nobody wants to see. And you just have to kind of hope that, like, you know, um, th- these investigations, while notable and 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 while certainly important that they don't that the democrats don't distract themselves from from larger prizes and they they can't uh uh retroactively be blamed for for uh glaring lapses um uh if indeed there's some sort of foreign crisis that, that that's well, what i worry about a little bit that's well if if the democrats have anything to prove they will fuck it up as they <laughs> always do so they, they there's that they have proven that time and again John Kelly, it has been an incredible year, um, and I think that does it. Unless you have any last questions for me, no. Happy New Year, Nick. Happy New Year. Happy Can't New Year, twenty nineteen. All right, here let's let's go out with a bang with our our special thanks. Thanks to my guest today, me and John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and for being such wonderful partners in this wonderful podcast. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Netflix. Be sure to see that movie, Bird Box. It is terrifying and you will be on the edge of your seat the entire time. Please support Netflix the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next year. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.